Welcome to the Fertility Journeys podcast. Here's Dr. Shala Salem. What is the difference between infertility stress and infertility trauma? You know, symptoms of infertility stress are anxiety, this hypervigilance, difficulty sleeping. One of the differences between stress and trauma is severity of the symptoms. How long have the symptoms been going on and how is this really impacting relationships, one's ability to work, sleep, eat? All of those basic functions are much more severe in infertility trauma as opposed to stress. Stress will actually work itself out over time. And with trauma, that doesn't necessarily happen. I know the fertility journey is not easy. Many suffer in silence, walking that line between hope and devastation. More often than we know, the path to building a family is met with challenges. I'm Dr. Shala Salem, and for over a decade, I have been helping people just like you on their fertility journey. As a physician and a PCOS warrior who's gone through my own fertility struggles, I am passionate about helping to support your mental and physical well-being, foster your resilience, and help you maintain your sense of self on this difficult journey. I created this podcast to support you. Each week, you can learn from our expert guests about proven holistic and integrative methods to nurture your mind, body, and spirit. And hear women share their own stories to remind you that you are not alone. Welcome to Fertility Journeys. Fertility Journeys Life Hacks. Here's the tip of the week. Today, I am speaking all about integrative medicine and what it is. So much of my podcast is based on integrative medicine and the principles that help to support the mind, the body, spirit, and foster community. You know, one of the beauties of integrative medicine is that we look at all the factors that influence health and wellness and disease processes. And all of those things are taken into consideration. We don't just look at the symptoms and then look at how to treat those. We look at, are there things in your life that perhaps are impacting those symptoms? For example, you know, what does your home life look like? What does your stress look like? How are you sleeping at night? What does your job environment look like? Are you exposed to any chemicals in your environment? All of those things are important to have an understanding of the patient. Unfortunately, most of the time those things are ignored. And so I was really inspired to go into integrative medicine because I felt like there was more. There was more that I should have been asking. There was more that I should have been looking into. And integrative medicine really allowed me to get more information for my patients. I will never forget when I started asking questions about some of the things that I learned, how much information that I got from patients that I'd never heard of before. I mean, how many times have you been asked by your physician, how's your sleep? How's your stress? What's your job like? Are you happy with your job? What's your life purpose? Very rarely do physicians ask those questions. And it doesn't mean your physician doesn't care about you because physicians do. Physicians go into medicine to take care of people, to help. But unfortunately, the time that they often have to spend with their patients is very limited. And so those things get pushed to the side. And so the focus becomes on symptoms and trying to treat symptoms in the quickest way possible. But ultimately, when we skip those things, we can miss a lot of clues. 
And I have worked with patients before where some of those questions, I think, have really helped me to get to the bottom of what's going on. And so integrative medicine, we also look at the combination of conventional alternative methods. We're looking for things that are backed by science. And it's very difficult to walk the line between alternative and conventional medicine. Because sometimes some of the things that you'll find online that are quote-unquote alternative or holistic, they are not steeped in science. So please be careful where you get your information from. There is a lot of research to support natural remedies, but there are some natural remedies that have no research to support them. When practicing integrative medicine, we try to pick the most effective natural methods when possible. And when it may not be possible to totally use natural methods, but the combination I think really there is key. One thing that's really important to understand about integrated medicine is we don't just reject conventional medicine. By no means is that what it means. And we blindly accept alternative therapies. As I said, we're really looking at research to support these natural remedies and methods and techniques. One of the things that's most important about integrative medicine is seeing the patient as your partner in the process of healing, okay? Because I see myself as an expert in my field but the patient is the expert of their body. I haven't lived in that patient's shoes for 25, 35 years. So that patient is gonna tell me about their experience and listening is so important. So if you are working with a physician and you don't feel like you are being heard or listened to, look for someone else. Everyone has a different provider or physician that is complimentary to them. Find someone and find a place where you feel comfortable, where you're being heard. And I can't tell you how many women with PCOS or endometriosis or young women with infertility have been ignored for a very long time. If this is you, try to look for someone who's going to hear you. Unfortunately, little attention is paid to mental health and mental well-being when a couple is going through fertility treatment. And I think we often think we need to pay attention to mental health only when we're at our rock bottom or breaking point. And someone who's really inspired me and helped me to learn so much about mental health and mental well-being was Dr. Lori Johnson. I'm so excited to have her here as my guest today. Welcome, Dr. Lori. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. It's my pleasure. I'm so excited to have you. Why do you think that mental health is so often an afterthought when couples are dealing with infertility? From my perspective, mental health is considered an afterthought because infertility is usually a medical diagnosis. And when you are dealing with something that is part of the medical world, so to speak, mental health isn't necessarily thought of. It's more of this is a physical condition that needs to be treated. There's a diagnosis, a treatment plan, and a prognosis that clearly has this trajectory for how you deal with it. And so I think a lot of people naively think that going into fertility treatments means, all right, we're just dealing with the physical side of things. But one of the things obviously, you know, that we're seeing and have seen for a long time is that infertility or struggles with fertility don't just affect one's, you know, physical reproductive health. And 
there is definitely a mental health component to that because this idea of my my body isn't working the way that I expected it to. And now I'm having to see doctors and go through these invasive tests and multiple appointments. And at first you can think about that from a distance and really think, okay, it's just something that we have to do, but we don't really take into account the emotional toll that comes along with that. So I think it's a natural progression that takes place for people when they start to undergo fertility treatments. And so I think that's one of the reasons why it's an afterthought. It's more of a physical kind of issue as opposed to an emotional issue or seen that way, I should say. Yeah, and we're used to looking for physical symptoms, which may come up if you're dealing with infertility stress or trauma after Mm -hmm. a lengthy period of time. It may actually Mm -hmm. materialize into physical symptoms, and then that may prompt someone to look for answers. We're not used to just going to our doctor to do a mental health checkup, right? Right. We don't do check-ins on our mental health and our mental well-being, which is really unfortunate because... And I guess that's part of sometimes there's a stigma surrounding asking for help or looking for help. That means there's some kind of problem with you Um, as opposed to, you know, we go to our general doctor and do our yearly checkup. It it seems that we should be doing that for our mental health as well. And especially when you're going through something like infertility. Absolutely. I completely agree. Can you tell us a little bit about why you chose to work with infertility patients and specifically in the area of trauma? I started working with infertility patients by accident. My clientele just started to shift. I was seeing a lot more professional women who were having you know, questions about their fertility, how we're going through pregnancy losses. And so it was something that kind of found me. And then it, it unfortunately it mirrored what was going on personally and being someone who was older, who had delayed getting married and having children to establish my career. So it was very, it's very interesting parallel process of seeing women who were like me. And so I had some familiarity with the the community before I fully dedicated myself to it. And so I think my own struggles, like I said, being an older person who got married later in life and decided to start planning a family later and and encountering these really tragic struggles gave me some insight into what the community needed. And it was very interesting going through it as a therapist myself and how many doctors spoke to me about mental health issues or or didn't. And then also trying to take stock of, you know, everything that I was going through. So it was this very interesting evolution over time that really helped me recommit to and focus on not just infertility in particular, but infertility trauma, which was obviously a very different presentation Mm -hmm. clinically that that we see from time to time for for sure. And I imagine having gone through struggles personally, that it helps you to work with patients. But at the same time, I imagine that was quite difficult for you to be working in the same space. Yes. And there were times where I was very heavily in the community before I considered myself in the community. And then once I started to have some of my struggles, I did back off a little bit as much as I could that was clinically appropriate. And as you can imagine, being a therapist, and I do a lot because I deal with people who are struggling with some pretty significant mental health issues, Mm -hmm. chronic depression, anxiety, and you can unfortunately never tell what's going to unfold in the the therapy room. And so there are some people who are dealing with fertility issues that I couldn't 
necessarily say after two years of working together, I can't work with you anymore. There's a relationship there. So I had to really approach that delicately. And I got a lot of support around that, but it wasn't necessarily taking on a lot of new cases or anything like that because, you know, I wanted to make sure that I was doing right by my current clients who I definitely care very much Mm -hmm. for and as I do all of my clients. But there's a way that I think we as clinicians try to regulate what kind of cases we have based on what's going on personally. And you do that as much as possible. And then sometimes when things just unfold in the room, Mm -hmm. you have to handle that. And so it just was a very delicate process of navigating that to help me figure out not just where I stood, but also what the community, what my clients needed and and giving me more insight into how to be helpful to them. So that my personal experience definitely informed that. Yeah, I can only imagine how difficult. Did you work with a personal therapist during that time? Yes, Yes, absolutely. I had my personal therapy. I was doing professional consultation. Mm -hmm. There was support on multiple levels because of where my clients were at and where I was at. And so it was definitely a way to make sure that I was moving through this ethically for for them and making sure that they were being taken care of while taking care of myself. And I think that's important to highlight Mm -hmm. you as a therapist need someone to support you. So we all need somebody to help us along, even though with all your training and all your expertise, at the end of the day, you're somebody that needs support as well. Definitely. I'm human. I'm human. That's right. I might have the tools for for human still and need that support just like anybody else. I have to have that separation. It's difficult sometimes as a clinician to have the separation, right? Between of being on the job and what's happening in your personal life and making sure that doesn't encroach on the patient. It's so difficult. It is. And and one of the reasons why I appreciate how we connected and what I'm seeing with other providers, both medical providers and mental health providers, is showing that human side and allowing our communities and our patients and clients to see our humanness as well, because I think that makes us even more well-rounded providers when we do that. Yeah, for sure. Mm -hmm. We have vulnerabilities Mm -hmm. just like everybody else. Definitely. What is the difference between infertility stress and infertility trauma? That's a great question because obviously the symptoms of infertility stress are this sense of anxiety, this hypervigilance, difficulty sleeping, very very similar to symptoms of stress that we would experience in, in other areas. One of the differences between stress and trauma that I see is severity. What is the Mm -hmm. severity of the symptoms? How long have the symptoms been going on? And what is the impact? And so there's a way that we think about medical necessity in the medical Mm -hmm. community and also how it impacts a sense of functioning. So then I'm curious about how is this symptom really impacting relationships, one's ability to work, one's ability to sleep, eat, all of those kind of basic kinds of functions that we see that are much more kind of severe in infertility trauma as opposed to to stress. One thing that I think is another hallmark of infertility trauma is certain flashbacks or difficulties with or specific triggers around like maybe 
going to doctor's appointments where they've heard bad news and then they'll have these very intense stress reactions that really manifest physically for them. And Mm -hmm. and also emotionally, we're seeing some just more intense feelings around the anxiety and depression that really can impact someone's ability to function in relationships or at work or just engaging how they used to. And I also look for when I'm diagnosing, whether we're looking at a stress reaction or something that's a little bit more on the traumatic side is I listen to the client's report. You know, um, mm-hmm. it's not just diagnostic criteria that we might see in the, the DSM-4, which is the manual that we use for diagnosis, right. but really listening to how is the client experiencing these symptoms? How does this compare to where they were before? What language mm-hmm. are they using? And also one of the things that we see that I think is another hallmark between the difference between stress and trauma is Stress will actually work itself out over time if we put certain interventions in place, stress management techniques. And with trauma, that doesn't necessarily happen. So that's another difference for people to be aware of. And that if it's not resolving on its own, if it's still continuing, then that's also something that puts us in more of the trauma category as opposed to the stress category. And you mentioned time. Is time being the time mm-hmm. on the fertility journey to say that you're more likely to fall into the category of trauma. However, I think sometimes we may not be starting the clock at the right point. So That's a lot a of point. times when you go to the doctor's office, mm-hmm. you've already had the clock rolling for two, three, four years by the time you get yes. to the doctor's office, by the time you start treatment. So this is something that while you're on treatment now, you may have been going through now for five, six years. So it's important to pay attention to all the stuff that happened before you even looked into fertility treatment. You're right, because once people do start, when you think about it, I think we tell people who are under 35 Mm -hmm. to try for a year. And sometimes people are trying for longer than that Mm -hmm. before going to see a doctor. And sometimes they don't necessarily start with fertility doctors like yourself. They Mm -hmm. start with their their primary care doctor or their OB, but they might have more of a relationship with. And so, yeah, absolutely. Once they get to the fertility doctor's office, the clock has already started. and, And I think that what people are doing is really trying to piece together as much information as they can, understandably. But the the piece around mental well-being is still lacking. And I think that there's some, there's a shift in that. But but yeah, that's not necessarily happening when it should. Yeah. Do you think all women who are struggling with infertility experience some kind of stress or trauma? I do think that all experience stress. I don't think Mm -hmm. that all experience trauma. So it's either or. I do believe that the overwhelming majority do experience that because it's intimidating going into a medical doctor's office to have some intervention around your reproductive health. And I think we have a taboo around infertility. We have a taboo around our reproductive systems and talking Mm -hmm. about that. And you have multiple layers that I think are at play when they finally do get to the doctor's office. And you're bringing a third person into a very intimate part of your, your life individually and and as a couple so the stress is there and there are definitely some emotional blockages I think that happen for people because of that but yeah definitely I think there's value for anybody who's going through 
infertility struggles, no matter the length in working with someone like Mm -hmm. yourself, working with a mental health professional, I think it's for everybody. It's not just for those who are dealing with trauma per se. Absolutely. I do believe there should be resources available and suggestions around seeking support for mental well-being and or at least carrying the Mm -hmm. message that you might not feel like you need it right now, but at some point you will. So I always tell people it's better that you have it and not need it than really need it and not have it. Correct, because you can arm yourself with the type of tools and the techniques that you use with your clients to try Mm -hmm. to help you with those triggers with certain situations Mm -hmm. because infertility doesn't just stop at the doctor's office. It seeps into all areas of our lives. And then you're in the grocery store and you maybe encounter someone who's pregnant or maybe you're going down the pregnancy test aisle on accident and things like Mm -hmm. that, getting your period. That is something that we can't avoid. It's something that's gonna happen every month and that's a trigger. So I think it's important to work with someone and, and really identify how you can help yourself with those triggers definitely and learning those skills to to manage because it's possible people don't have to to suffer in silence mm-hmm. and it, it's possible to get the tools that you need to manage this as best you can i wanted to talk a little bit about men because i think mm-hmm. often men mm-hmm. are ignored we think that they don't experience the stress or the trauma or grief the same way that women do but they mm-hmm. still go through the pain of the Mm -hmm. process and we don't identify that as much as we do in women i don't think we identify it as much because the bulk of fertility treatments are happening to women and and their bodies and so i think just because of that dynamic the focus Mm -hmm. becomes a female's perspective and experience like you said men are definitely going through this process too and having feelings that because they might process differently it might look differently than Mm -hmm. what you know their counterparts process looks like and and then that becomes a little bit of a rub emotionally and that's where some of the couples work comes in that I do in terms of helping couples really hold space for them trying to understand that differences in style doesn't necessarily mean a bad thing, but also helping them work on and nurture their connection to hold the, the intense feelings that you know come from the grieving process or the stress of infertility and, and their differing reactions to it. I so. think sometimes people feel hurt because their partner yes. is grieving differently or maybe seems mm-hmm. not as sad as they are and that's wrong but they may not share their emotions in the same way how do you recommend that couples maintain the connection and stay rooted in where their relationship began before all of this started there are a couple of ways that couples can maintain that connection first and foremost i think is making sure that there is time and space for non-fertility related conversations and activities because it's so easy for fertility related information to just bleed into every area of one's life so you're at dinner and you're talking about when you're going to start your next cycle or what doctor to you know do you feel comfortable staying and not or just depending on wherever you are in in your treatment process it can be all-encompassing and when it is so overwhelming your relationship kind of gets flooded so you need a break from that having weekly times dates things like that to where you do 
activities that you used to yeah. do before infertility took over and being intentional about it because and I use that word purposely because sometimes you might not feel like you want to do it that's mm-hmm. where some of the heaviness of the infertility stress and whatever else you might be feeling just keeps you weighted down it's like I really don't feel like doing anything let's just stay home and blah 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 I'm just feeling really out of it and it's, can you just push yourself can you mm-hmm. just try five minutes just to try to get going because sometimes just getting over that hump that really allows people to engage and we do know that changing scenery can be very helpful. Also, it's working on communication styles. Maybe you're setting up time to have fertility-free conversations. Maybe you set time to have fertility-related conversations. So you both know when to expect those conversations and you have some idea, some structure around it. And because I think this is really helpful when you have one partner, and unfortunately, it's usually the female who's doing all of the research and processing all the information. And then the partner just relaying it to her partner and the partner's just what? We call that flooding. It's actually this flooding kind of process where you're both overwhelmed with information, but you have very different reactions. And so it helps you learn how to manage those reactions differently. I like how you said about trying to schedule a time and push yourself because I think sometimes we need to give ourselves permission to feel joy, right? And to still be happy. How do you stay happy and feel joy when you're dealing with this overwhelming grief? How do you maintain that type of balance? It can be very hard. It's not impossible. And people might have those moments where they might not feel like leaving the house. They just want to stay home. And there is a point where I think it's important to work on being intentional about putting things on the calendar to help make sure that you have that connection. And so it's really a delicate balance. I know that one of the things that I talk about personally that, you know, we travel a lot and or at least we did before COVID. And that was actually a really fabulous reset for us. And and it doesn't necessarily have to be on the scale that we did per se, but having those moments where you're doing something that you both enjoy, that takes you out of yourselves, that takes you out of your environment. And so for us, even being home where it's really just hard to be home because of grief that we were dealing with as well and all of those associations. And and just gave us that reset and it was very rejuvenating. And so I wish that reset for all couples going through this because it's possible. You might labor in it for a little bit. So I don't want to paint an unrealistic picture. And I think there's always an intentionality that I think behind, you know, the process that I think is important. Yeah, I think that's really great advice because mm-hmm. I think it's important to try to carve out a space where your life is not getting flooded with infertility Mm -hmm. and you still are able to have that joy and how did you connect like i said before fertility you know there was this bond that existed before you had to go to the doctor's office and undergo all these treatments or unfortunately dealing with loss right you had that bond and it, it gets strained by all of these things It definitely gets strange. And so do what you used to do before these treatments took over. Go to your favorite places or discover new ones. I often think about how childhood experiences and particularly traumas can influence adult lives. And then we don't really speak about these types of things unless you're working with a therapist. I want to get your opinion on how do those types of things impact infertility trauma? Does it compound it or how does that work in? It definitely can, depending on what kind of work the person has done around their previous trauma. 
And so one of the things that we know about trauma experiences is that it impacts our parasympathetic system and how we self-regulate. And so depending on what kind of support they received before, it could help buffer this new kind of trauma experience or it could make it worse. And that's where I think that there's the benefit of working with someone who is trained in mental health to understand trauma and the history behind it and do more of that history taking to understand, okay, when did this come up before? And so that's something that I'm listening for too, because and I know we might talk about this a little bit later, but I'm mm-hmm. also, I'm trained in EMDR, which is a trauma therapy approach. Right. And so whenever I work with somebody in the infertility community, I routinely ask those questions too, because what I've seen is that it does impact their ability to cope and, and to self-regulate and to process some of those traumas as well. Yes, I think what has happened early in childhood can influence. It doesn't always have to, but it can influence the present experience. And I think it's important yeah. to be mindful of that and how. Tell us a little bit about EMDR and your work with that. I heard about it 20 years ago when when I was a baby therapist and the person who actually created the model gave a, a presentation. But EMDR stands for Eye Movement Desensitization and Reprocessing. And it is a trauma approach. And it's been very nice to actually see this develop over time because as a baby therapist, I think there's a lot of getting a little more history to it. But There's a reason why I'm saying that because it is one of the newer approaches compared to cognitive behavioral therapies, things like that. And so I think sometimes when something is new, you compare it to other modalities that can be seen as this really sound. And 20 years later, we have the longitudinal data around what it is like to take these experiences of people who have gone off to war or experience these very, what we at one point considered really big traumas and learn how to apply them to other instances or populations where we were starting to see traumatic reactions in people that didn't necessarily get labeled as trauma before. And infertility was one of them. Mm -hmm. What EMGR does is it provides this, not just this understanding of neurobiological kind of connection between the experiences that we have, the triggers in our felt lived experiences, it's also realizing that sometimes the way that our body stores these memories is what's Mm -hmm. problematic. And so we really try to help access those in a safe way and help people reprocess in a way, knowing that innately we have the ability to self-heal. But when we have these trauma experiences that kind of get stored in our body, they haven't necessarily been processed as healthfully as they can. So EMDR really tries to target that and to really work with people's own kind of self-healing mechanisms to move through that in a different way. We use this technique called bilateral stimulation where we might alternate mm-hmm. tapping on you know, one shoulder or we'll use a pointer and have people use their eyes to follow. One of the things that Francine Shapiro, the founder of this treatment, noticed that you know, when her eyes were moving, it's similar to what they think happens when we're in REM sleep. She was able to work through some pretty traumatic experiences and have a different experience of it. So in some ways, it was like the the sting of the trigger was no longer there. She was Mm -hmm. like, whoa, whoa, how did this happen? So that's where the 20 plus years of research was like, okay, how is this working? We worked backwards. and, And so that's how EMGR was really born. That's fascinating. I really had not heard about it much until I learned about your work. And and like, Mm -hmm. here you are telling me it's been around for 20 years. I have no idea why I didn't learn about it before. But how long does this type of work take? 
I'm sure that's, that's a hard a question, point. but... <laughs> Let me back up for a quick second, because I think that mm-hmm. the, what we find with an EMDR, after we've done some of the what we call the preparation and we get to what's called active processing, where we're really focused on the traumatic memory or experience, it can be a more efficient process than traditional talk therapy. Whereas right. previous trauma therapy could be several years, we started to notice that this part of the work, of the more intensive work, could be reduced dramatically. I would say you know, it's hard to give an average because I think mm-hmm. it depends yeah. on what else people are working on. But I do think that there's a level of efficiency that happens where I've used it also for people who are dealing with stuckness around grief with related to, mm-hmm. to pregnancy loss. And I've had clients say to me, and this is just over a few sessions of doing this work, that the pain of the loss is still there, but it's manageable. And they got to a place with the grief that felt new and mm-hmm. I don't want to maybe exciting, but just they, a freeing because right. they hadn't imagined getting to that space. And so I've seen it on both ends of the continuum where just a few sessions can be helpful for some people versus sometimes there are more sessions that are needed. Just, it really depends on how the person is presenting and what other issues are potentially compounding the memory or the trigger that we're trying to target. I like the idea that there's more efficiency in it, right? Because yes. dealing yes. with this is very taxing in all areas of your life. So being able to work with someone and see some type of progress in a handful of sessions, I think that's huge. Definitely. I agree. And it's one of the reasons why when I use some of these techniques, even with my fertility stress clients, it's more about being proactive and giving them tools as quickly as possible prevent it from potentially moving into a trauma-like presentation. One of the things is when you meet with a therapist and you do talk therapy, you feel like, okay, the hour is done and you haven't even talked about a little speck of your history yet. And so it takes you like 10 sessions before they fully understand what's going on with you. So being able to accomplish things in a shorter period of time and even in whatever capacity that it shortens it is definitely helpful. And one other thing about EMDR that I really like that I would love for your listeners to know is that I think sometimes we have this idea that when we're going through trauma that we have to talk about all of the details too. Sometimes we don't have words for that, but our body might still have that information stored somewhere. So the beauty of EMDR is that we're not necessarily just focusing on what is the target or difficult memory or thoughts that go into that, but we can talk about the feeling too, or recognize, okay, you might not have the words, but where is it in your body? And so Mm -hmm. if, if people can't fully give voice to their trauma, which is also very common occurrence, we can still do the work and work on sensations and how that moves as well. I think that's another reason why I really like the approach. It sounds like a really great option. How do people find someone who does that type of work? There is a national organization called Andrea, E-M-D-R-I-A dot org. That is our governing body for EMDR therapists. So there's a listserv there that you can search for an EMDR therapist. If you go to one of the various therapist referrals that are out there mm-hmm. from Psychology Today to Therapy Den to Therapy for Black Girls, you would probably look for EMDR as a filter to right. help identify or even a Google search of EMDR therapists in your area. There are multiple ways to try to find someone who does EMDR therapy. 
Okay, perfect. We'll put that mm-hmm. in the show notes. So if anyone okay. is looking to work with someone, we'll put your information as well. Now, Thank I think you. one of the other issues is that there's still some stigma around getting support for your mental health. And I think this comes up in particular cultures and backgrounds mm-hmm. that there's more of taboo and stigma. Someone listening may have this idea that it's not for them. What kind of words of encouragement or things can you tell them that can maybe help them to seek the help that they need? First of all, I totally understand. I come from a community and culture where we're very distrustful of the medical community, let alone mental health. And so it was, I think, one of the reasons why I felt so strongly about being in the mental health field as well, to not just understand my culture and understand my own experiences, but to provide that sense of representation and normalize that getting support is not a bad thing. And so I think there's a lot to be said for representation and how that could potentially challenge some of the cultural norms. And the thing that's so hard is because I think culture is such a a beautiful thing. It makes us who we are in some ways. And and I have this saying in sessions sometimes where just because it's cultural doesn't mean it's right. It's a very delicate balance between adhering to, I think, some of the beauties of our culture that make us who we are and challenging some of those cultural messages that really influence the stigma that Mm -hmm. is attached to to getting help. And so it's really honoring where people are at and saying, you know, I'm here when you need anything Mm -hmm. and and really trying to approach it gently. And I know that as the more that we're talking about this and we're seeing more non-white people reach out and talk about their own stories, it can make it a little bit easier. But still, I I know that Mm -hmm. if the family messages right. are really strong mm-hmm. it's going to make it a lot harder too so it's such a yeah, balance it's something it's you're balance. raised with you hear yeah. for your entire upbringing and that you just take that on that's considered exactly. normal right. in your life yeah exactly one of the things i also wanted to discuss with you is mm-hmm. that infertility stress and trauma and your grieving process all of those things can impact our intimacy, sex life. How can you support your intimate relationship when you have this sort of, there's something there like grief is, it's almost like Mm -hmm. the elephant in the room. How do you maintain that intimate relationship with your partner? One of the ways to do that is to start by having a conversation about how it has changed, really being forthright about it, because I think sometimes couples just don't talk about it either. Or they might talk about it when it's gotten to a point where over time it's become more of that elephant in the room and it becomes a little bit harder to deal with and manage. And that's where I feel like taking breaks from treatment and getting Mm -hmm. some support or making sure that you're having time to connect intimately that might not necessarily involve intercourse either. So it might be really reframing what is connecting intimately look like, depending on what the issue is. Because I think one of the things that we see a lot of, but we don't talk a lot about, is that we see some sexual dysfunction start to happen, where Mm -hmm. there's difficulty with arousal or just difficulty with performing in general. And that's actually very normal, but it doesn't get talked about. So if we can prioritize still sexual, but just different kinds of ways to connect that might involve touch or just the different interventions that I think that can be helpful to take the 
physical act of sex off the table for a bit and allow couples to still join in an intimate way Mm -hmm. to work back toward that. And I think having that pressure off of the relationship and that expectation while you're still working on connecting emotionally and still physically, I think that's where we start. And one of the activities that I encourage couples to use is just maybe just massaging each other and doing some items and things like that, that can still be very connecting, but that just don't have that same level of expectation and pressure associated yeah, with them. Yeah, I think that's great advice because often one partner is on a totally different page than the other partner. And then mm-hmm. one partner may feel like, oh my goodness, how are they okay with or wanting to be intimate when I'm going through this? This exactly. is that disconnect on how we are going through the grieving process. Exactly. I think also there's this misconception that once you get to the quote-unquote goal of getting pregnant, mm-hmm. that our traumas are gone, the stress of infertility is gone, you're healed, quote unquote healed now. I, and I think that's one of the important reasons to be working with a therapist early on, because this stuff, if you don't take care of it now, it can come up through mm-hmm. pregnancy, through postpartum, and on and on. It can, for sure. And getting those tools to manage those feelings early on is important. And when you're so focused on getting pregnant for years, we don't really mm-hmm. plan for the postpartum period. And so that's when parents are really vulnerable to mm-hmm. postpartum depression, postpartum Correct. anxiety. And I say parents because the data is actually clear. It's not just the moms that are going through it. The dads right. are going through it as well, believe it or not. And it's really getting the tools to manage because now in addition to all the stress that you've experienced, leading up to the pregnancy and now here's the birth and you think oh this is a wonderful occasion which it is Mm -hmm. please don't get me wrong but then you're dealing with the sleeplessness that goes along with that and if you don't have the sleep Mm -hmm. to help regulate your bodies then of course it's going to exacerbate those symptoms as well so yeah between that and the hormonal shifts it's a lot it's a lot yeah and also dealing with the anxiety throughout the pregnancy right and then there's this idea that this is what you wanted so although you may be experiencing difficulty in pregnancy we shouldn't talk about it because that's what you wanted and that's what some people will say sometimes it's just horrible and right without any kind of sensitivity to the experience of the person where it's like of course people can want this and still Mm -hmm. struggle with it like somehow the fact that it's happened is going to take away all of those feelings and it's like that's not how our emotional experience works yeah yeah, I totally agree. That's why it's it's really important that you know, those of you who are listening, please work with somebody. You know, ideally, everybody on the fertility journey will work with a therapist. I yeah. think that would be amazing. But right. unfortunately, that's not the reality. Right. So what are some techniques that you recommend as a starting point for someone who has not started work with a mental health professional yet? I think that you can do a lot with meditation, mindfulness, prayer, and I lump all of those together because I think those are very important, just very soothing acts that you can do where you're setting aside time. You might be focusing on your breathing, focusing on specific words that are meaningful to you, very inspiring, very calming and soothing. And I use the word soothing a lot in my work too, because Mm -hmm. when we're stressed, our arousal levels are high and we want to calm or soothe them. So 
things that make you feel soothed are important. Right. And, and especially when there's so many elements of this journey that can trigger these anxious moments. So I think starting with that, and also sometimes mindfulness can be helpful for some people where meditation mm-hmm. or prayer just doesn't really resonate for them. And mindfulness might, because the difference between meditation and mindfulness, and I think sometimes they get lumped in together, is because yeah. mindfulness is actually noticing, being right. aware and, and checking in with yourself about, okay, this is what I'm feeling. What do I want to do with that? Or what do I need to do with that? And that can be soothing for people uh, as well. These are some initial places to start to build this kind of self-care toolkit for people mm-hmm. to draw from. And you might need different needs depending on where you are. And that's something that I talk about as well. And because what might work for one person is not going to work for the other person. Everybody is unique and has their own way of responding. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I don't know. Sometimes meditation for some people, it's, oh, I can't do this. And we throw it away right away. So I think yes. it's important to, to allow yourself to try a few times. It doesn't have to be you're sitting there 15 minutes. It's a couple minutes a day. Right. And knowing that is okay for your mind to wander. That is normal part yes. of meditation. I think we have this idea yes. that our mind is going to be blank and we're that's it. I can't do it because my mind doesn't go blank. Minds never go blank. Exactly. And I'm glad you mentioned that because I think that is the biggest misconception of what meditation is about. Mm-hmm. That we've been taught that meditation means that you need to clear your mind. And if you're not clearing your mind, then somehow you're doing it wrong. It's getting to that point because there are some people who can get to that point. That's a very learned practice and that takes years upon years, but there's still a benefit from just setting aside a few minutes a day where you might even just stare at a candle and just do some breathing runs and just pay attention to your, your breathing and notice what thoughts come in and then you just say, next. But having that time, it's just like a little reset. And I, I even do that in sessions with clients. And I was like, we might in session like this, or if they're really dysregulated or stressed in, in session, I, I'll do that as an intervention. I was like, okay, we're going to do a little reset right now. And you just let me know how it feels. And yeah. it works. Just doing it over time that actually helps you build more strength and confidence around your ability to do that. Yeah. And that's why we call it meditation practice. Exactly. Because it's something that takes practice. I know we expect that we're going to acquire some new skill in five minutes. This is something that you have to work at just as everything we are learning new. It's something you continually have to work at and just being patient. And honestly, having five minutes or 15 minutes in the day where you are not just go. We are right. go, go to right. work, go to our appointment, go do this errand, do that errand. Let me look at my phone. Let me be on the computer. It's nonstop. Exactly. And so I think just taking that time to be like no phones, no computer, no tablet. I'm not going to talk to anybody right now. It's just me time. I think yep. that's important. Exactly. I agree. Especially in the age of technology, where it's really made Mm -hmm. a difference in our lives and we're able to work more efficiently and connect with people differently. And there's some beautiful things about it. And I think it has set up this level of impatience because we have this need for immediacy. And that, I think, contributes to the anxiety that we have about not having answers or not having something that is going to be a quick fix. And so it's learning how to manage and learning how to soothe. It's different. 
Yeah, we are used to a lot of quick fixes and everything from yeah. medicine. We mm-hmm. get same day delivery when from our yes. apps. Yes. And so everything exactly. is immediate. But a lot yes. of the things that really have the lasting effects, they take time and they take lots of work, which is uncomfortable. Definitely. Definitely. And I think mindfulness is, like you said, a great place to start because I think one of the other things that can happen is this, and I'm guilty of it, it's constantly living in the future, waiting until this happens and then I'm going to be happy and then I'm going to be good. It becomes a setup when you're constantly thinking about the future and waiting until Mm -hmm. that thing happens for you to be happy, you miss out on the moments of joy that are Mm -hmm. around you in the present. And so that's where the mindfulness can be very appropriate to help you reset or refocus your attentions on what's in front of you right now. Yeah, it's actually hard. Mm -hmm. It's really hard. Mm -hmm. It is. is. And then you realize, my goodness, I've missed so many of those moments. It sometimes can feel very overwhelming, too. Definitely very overwhelming, for sure. I wanted to just get your little bit of advice on navigating social media as somebody Mm -hmm. dealing with infertility or dealing with loss. Social media can have some great things, but also can be a source of triggers. I have a lot of opinions about it because I've seen how social media has changed access to support over the past Mm -hmm. 10 years. And it's one of the reasons why I love it in a sense. If I can just be frank, I have a love-hate relationship with it. And I know that for a lot of people don't necessarily know my story. I've had four pregnancy losses, Mm -hmm. one of which was a termination for medical reasons. I remember Mm -hmm. specifically trying to get support around that six years ago and feeling like I was going into like the barrels of the internet, you know, underbelly, trying Mm -hmm. to get support because there weren't women talking about it or couples talking about it. There was a lot of shame around that type of loss. And so I found a very small group of people in a very securist way who were all struggling with the same thing. And now we have hashtags for it where you can easily identify people. So I love it for that because you really need to connect to people who get your experience. I love that it, it does connect people in a way that would not have been connected. Now, the flip side is the piece around it being incredibly overwhelming. And then you're getting everybody's emotional experience that's really playing Mm -hmm. out on your feet. And you don't need access to all of that. This is where mindfulness is very important in terms of checking in with yourself about okay, is this helpful? Is this moving Mm -hmm. me along? Is this making it worse? Because it can. And I've had plenty of people come to see me after saying, I've been doing support groups and social media, and I just can't do that anymore. And I'm like, yeah, I get it. Mm -hmm. Because you're getting everybody else's emotional experience in real time when it hasn't been fully worked Mm -hmm. out. And it's almost like this emotional diary of sorts that Mm -hmm. isn't always helpful. So that's when I encourage people to mute so they can check in on people when they feel ready to or unfollow and really assessing what they need because it's really hard. It's really hard. I have patients personally who get on there and then they compare themselves Mm -hmm. to this person had this many eggs or this many embryos or this person did X number of cycles. Is that what it's going to mean for me? So you suddenly take that on as that's what's going to happen to you when everybody's journey is different. It's extremely different. There's not one that's identical. 
and then you start comparing outcomes to cycles. Then you start to compare protocols for cycles and mm. the supplements that people are taking. And then you start taking them, whether you might really need them or not. It's just overwhelming. And so getting that support for what is right for you is one thing and asking yourself, what do I need? Am I being influenced by what other people are saying or is it something that has been identified that I need medically or nutritionally? Yeah. I think it's really important to try to check in, which sometimes we forget mm-hmm. to do when we're on social media. We just feel like we have to constantly be on there, even mm-hmm. though it may be impacting your sleep or maybe impacting you from doing certain activities because you're spending so much time on there, right? Exactly. So you have a course called Learn How to Heal, Not Just Deal. And I want you to talk to us a little bit about that and mm-hmm. who it's designed for and who will get benefit from that course. Yes, so this course is a labor of love and the culmination of years of experience of working in the community and trying to identify what would be helpful to people who are at various points of their journeys. I found that people who are maybe in between treatments, this has been helpful for, and people who are toying with going child-free per se, after infertility. But it's actually rooted in my EMDR approach. Mm -hmm. It is geared towards learning how to heal and not just manage or deal with these symptoms that are associated with stress, trauma, and grief. And and I do talk about infertility grief, aside from pregnancy loss grief, because I think they're so intertwined. It's really understanding this grief model that people are living through that impacts their ability to learn how to cope as best they can and manage those strategies. So I have a few modules on stress and trauma, and then the rest of the modules are really learning about grief and disenfranchised grief at that because let's Mm -hmm. face it we're used to grieving and talk about stigma and not really knowing how to talk about fertility issues or struggles in communities I think we struggle with grief too in our communities and we don't necessarily see infertility as a grieving process but there's a level of grief at every step of the way when you have to ask for help or when you go through those Mm -hmm. treatments or when the cycles don't work out. It's this constant Mm -hmm. barrage of disappointments. And for some women, I've heard them say getting their period every month is like a funeral. Mm -hmm. Talk about the layers of grief that one learns how to deal with over time. And so Mm -hmm. this is really about empowering people to build up their tools for managing that and to really embrace and embody their healing process as much as they can. I think that's wonderful because although this is not a substitute for working one-on-one with Mm -hmm. a therapist like yourself, it's something that you can do now if you're not able to, for whatever reasons, work with a therapist, at least get some kind of support that will help you through the process. So I think it's it's such a valuable tool. I appreciate that because you you, you said something too that I think is important for people who don't necessarily have access. Mm -hmm. And while while we think that being involved in therapy is very helpful, not all therapists really understand fertility issues. This could be another window into that and uh, getting something that I call therapeutic, even though it might not be therapy, it can still be therapeutic and healing for them. Agreed. Lots of people don't have insurance coverage for fertility treatments. Often people do not have insurance coverage for mental health and more often probably mental Mm -hmm. health appointments. And so, again, it can be sometimes very difficult for everyone to have access to that. So that's why I think a course like yours can really be accessible to a lot of people who are not able to work. And like you said, they may not have someone who specializes in fertility close to them. 
And although the pandemic sort of changed things, we have more virtual appointments, but still some may only be working in certain states and you may not be able to have access to somebody. So I think that this is a wonderful option. So thank Thank you you for doing that for everyone. My pleasure. So how can listeners find you and connect with you and learn more about you? I have a website, drlauriejohnson.com, and it's D-R-L-O-R-E-E, johnson.com. And I am on social media, <laughs> so you can connect with me there. I'm on Instagram at Dr. Johnson. I'm also on Facebook, Dr. Lori Johnson as well. Usually, I, I probably spend a little bit more time on Instagram than I do on, on Facebook, but those are three ways that people can connect with me. We'll put those in the show notes. I really recommend if you're not following Dr. Johnson on Instagram, please do. She shares so much valuable information. It's really one of my favorite accounts. So thank Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you so much. And also, I just want to let people know, too, that I do have a free fertility self-care guide for individuals and couples. And then I also have a one on grief specifically. So if people aren't necessarily ready to dive into the course or they're just not there yet, that those are two other resources that can be available. That's great. And we'll put that in the show notes as well. Now, I encourage my patients to continue to try to find joy in everyday life Mm -hmm. because often we can let infertility define ourselves, right? So suddenly we've lost ourselves in the process. But I want to know, how do you cultivate joy in your life? It's been challenging with COVID, mind you, because mm-hmm. joy for me, and I've been very clear, it's been travel. I've been yes. wanting to reschedule a trip that we had to cancel because of COVID. And now because of other circumstances, we won't be able to take it for a while. And, and that's okay. Mm-hmm. I am finding joy in other people starting to travel and that opening up. Most recently, we had a Zoom meeting that was honoring a really special occasion for my husband and me and to mm-hmm. have everybody there join us by zoom was just Mm -hmm. so beautiful and the messages that people shared and i had my you know friends from high school college every single Mm -hmm. area of my life was was represented and so i've been on this high for several weeks thinking about all Mm -hmm. the love in my community so that's really what's bringing me joy right now as we celebrate a, a transition that we're going through Thank you for sharing that i do want to know where's the next place you're going to travel when you're able to do that that's a good question we canceled our trip to india and so i have no idea because my heart was really set on that i've been trying to Mm -hmm. get there for such a long time we'll probably take some stateside trips i'm from back east but i also have family like in the south so who knows where we'll probably make some family trips there first that's not good what's your favorite place that you've traveled to Oh my gosh, I would say Iran is probably one of my top five countries that I visited. And yeah, the hospitality is just amazing. And I just look at pictures so fondly of our time there Mm -hmm. and just beautiful people, beautiful food. And yeah, one of my top five. It's what I think of initially. And we've had, we were talking about this a while ago. It was like, we've had some really amazing trips that are all very different. Mm-hmm. But for some reason, that one continues to stand out when you think about some of the struggles that we have with how we're all getting along and just lots of really negative messages about groups of people and things like that. Mm-hmm. And you talk about you know, your sense of humanity and connectedness. 
being restored. And so it's just it's such a beautiful time that they were there. Yeah, thank you for sharing. I think that's why it's important to experience so many different cultures like you have, mm-hmm. right? To mm-hmm. go to all the different parts of the world because we're all different, but we're all human. Yeah, we're all exactly. We're all just trying to make a living and mm-hmm. trying to get through life and support our families and to enjoy ourselves. So, yeah. Yeah. Thank you so much for being here. I really appreciate you. you and all your time and all the work that you do. I can't thank you enough. My pleasure. My pleasure. Thank you. Thank you so much. Take care. The Fertility Journeys podcast. Thank you for listening today. Episodes of Fertility Journeys drop every week. Follow wherever you listen to podcasts. Learn more at fertilityjourneys.org. Next time on the Fertility Journeys podcast. For women of color, it's very important for us to identify these stereotypes at the doctor's office. No one is going to advocate for you. You are your own advocate and you are essentially interviewing and hiring your doctor. And so when you go in there with that mindset, your chin is up a little higher, your shoulders are rolled back. You have both feet firmly planted on the ground because you know you're the only one that can advocate for yourself. And so you have to be ready. You have to be ready and you know your body more than anybody else. And so just going in with that expectation that yes, there are stereotypes against women of color in doctor's offices. So just letting women know that that can happen to you and just to be ready to ask a few more questions. This podcast is for informational and educational purposes only. Please consult with your own physician as information shared on this podcast is not a substitute for medical advice.